Welcome back to Read Into Something, and thanks for joining us if you haven't listened before. We're about to start another fun podcast episode brought to you by the Stone County Library inside Alice's office at the Crane Branch. As always, I'm Alice, the branch manager. At my side is Winky, my mostly silent but intuitive co-host and the library mascot. Let them hear you, Wink. You may or may not know that I'm from Missouri. I've spent the majority of my life here, and I'm proud to call myself an Ozarkian. Missouri is celebrating its 200th anniversary as an American state. Today, we're going to delve into fun Missouri facts and history. Buckle up and hang on for the first part of a closer look at the 24th state in the Union. Before we begin, let me apologize for not bringing you the episode I promised last time. We were supposed to be cooking today, but I had a slight car accident that derailed a lot of my plans. Don't worry, Winky's fine. She wasn't with me at the time. Now, while I'm recovering from a broken rib, we're going to change the subject and talk history for a bit. Everyone loves a birthday party, except maybe the person turning a year older. The great thing about states is they don't care. Also, you don't have to buy your state a gift. However, the State Historical Society of Missouri and Missouri 2021 have put together a bunch of programs and information to present the state in all its old-timey and current glory. With that, we're going to dip our toes into the mighty river of Missouri history. There's a ton of history to discuss, so this is going to be part one of a few Missouri subjects. Here we go. Way back a long time ago, before ambitious Europeans invaded, I mean explored, the New World, the area we call Missouri had been inhabited by indigenous people for thousands of years. There was a huge Mississippian culture in what we call St. Louis and nearby Illinois. I highly recommend visiting the Cahokia State Historic Site, which is in Illinois, but they have a fascinating museum that gives a very detailed history of the Mississippian culture and the mound builders. The people who lived in and around Cahokia had established a trade network from the Great Lakes to the Gulf of Mississippi. Around 1250 AD, the city was larger than London. The mounds at Cahokia might be a subject for another time, since I'm easily distracted by talking about it and I'm trying to stay on the subject of Missouri. Anyway, big settlement on both sides of the Mississippi River, inhabited by a tribe of people with vast connections. The city was pretty much defunct by the 1400s and the natives had moved on. In the late 1600s, the French were exploring the river and land, looking for a way to colonize so they could keep the English out. They put in a fort and a mission and began mining for silver and lead ore. However, the company funding the mining suffered losses and the French had trouble keeping their settlements going. So, fun fact, St. Genevieve became the first true settlement in Missouri, where the inhabitants, a whopping 23 of them, farmed wheat, corn, and tobacco starting in 1735. At the time, all of the land was still known as Louisiana. The French were fighting with the English east of the Big Muddy and granted control of their lands to the Spanish. The French governor, however, granted permission for a trade monopoly, which allowed the city of St. Louis to be born in 1764. The Spaniards were in control of the area, but the people they governed were largely French, fleeing the English from Illinois, Missouri, and Osage Indians, and the beginning of American settlers. 
Thanks to Spanish aid and support, the War of Independence along the river was successful. More American settlers began to pour into the province of Missouri, encouraged by the Spanish, who hoped for flourishing economics. The Spanish offered free land, no taxes, and religious freedom to the new settlers. Despite their promises and the massive migration to Missouri, the settlers weren't particularly loyal to Spain and few of them wanted to convert to Catholicism. They tried to dictate the religion, but since they'd already promised the people of any religion could settle here, there wasn't much attempt to force settlers away from their beliefs. In 1800, Spain, without having much luck making money off Louisiana, returned control of the area to the French. It wasn't widely known that Napoleon and France were in control again. At the time, they were losing a war in Haiti, looking to fight the British again, and then cut off trading between the colonies they owned in and around the Gulf. Speaking of Napoleon, why didn't Napoleon get his wish? Because he couldn't pull the wish Bonaparte? In 1803, the United States bargained with Napoleon and bought the Louisiana Territory. The asking price for 828,000 square acres? A mere $15 million. Fun fact, the Americans were prepared to offer $10 million for New Orleans and the surrounding area. They couldn't believe it when, for another cool five, France was offering them enough land to double the size of the United States. There was some constitutional upheaval about the rash purchase of Louisiana, but Thomas Jefferson swore investing in the land was for the good of Americans. In the end, he won, and we got to keep all of that land. Spain was huffy about where the borders for Louisiana were, as they still owned Florida and Mexico. They didn't want hasty Americans stealing their territory. So to flush out the borders, several expeditions began in the early 1800s. You may have heard of a couple of the explorers, like Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. Not the first team to head west, but certainly one of the most well-known, due to them reaching the western seaboard. Jefferson hoped they would discover a water passage that would take them across the country for more trade. Remember, trains weren't a thing yet, and thanks to the Mississippi River, trade flourished along waterways. Meriwether Lewis, a native Virginian, was chosen by Jefferson to lead the way. Lewis, a veteran of the Whiskey Rebellion, the Northwest Indian War, and part of William Clark's Chosen Rifle Company, became Thomas Jefferson's secretary and aide-de-camp. He had an extensive education, and for that reason, Jefferson decided Lewis would be the perfect captain for such an adventure. Excited by the prospects, Lewis invited William Clark along for the ride. Technically, Clark was Lewis's lieutenant, because he was denied equal rank with Lewis, but they kept that information from the men they were leading and referred to each other as captain. The Corps left St. Louis in May 1804 and pushed their way up the Mississippi River. They covered 8,000 miles in three years. Lewis collected hundreds of animal and plant specimens from across the West. The Corps met with Indian chiefs and presented themselves as peaceful people willing to trade and invited the Indians they met to come to Washington to meet the United States leaders. As for William Clark, also a Virginian, he played a pivotal role in Missouri's future. He joined the militia to fight during the Indian Wars. Later, he helped establish forts along the Mississippi River and became leader of the Chosen Rifle Company. While he was managing his parents' estate, Lewis sent him a letter asking him to be co-leader for the expedition. Clark drew maps that were reproduced and used until the 1840s. His extensive journals detailing the trip are still regarded as treasures today. He became familiar with the Indian cultures along the route, and after plotting the mostly unexplored new sections of America, became an Indian agent. After the death of Lewis in 1809, the post for governor of Louisiana had a vacancy. Clark declined. However, Missouri became a territory in 1812, and he stepped forward, filling the role as governor and becoming the Indian supervisor. When Missouri became a state, he lost the election, but retained his role as supervisor of Indian affairs. He died of natural causes in St. Louis in 1838. 
We're going to leave it here for the moment because Missouri still has a lot of history to pour out and I only have so much time. Before we go, I do want to share my review of the movie version of News of the World. A joke before I start in. What did settlers eat when they were headed west? Pioneer trail mix. News of the World by Paulette Giles was the December book of the month, if you can remember back that far. I enjoyed the characters, the plot, and the setting, although I had my quibbles about the way the dialogue was printed. No big deal, because the dialogue held up on its own, despite the lack of quotation marks. I was pretty excited when I found out Hollywood was bringing the story to life, but I also had that initial fear they'd ruin it. On the other hand, it was awesome getting into a theater. I missed watching movies on the big screen and accidentally pushing the recline button on the seats so that I was either sitting up too straight or slouching too much. There's something special about eating overpriced junk food and whispering through previews surrounded by socially distant strangers in a big dark room. Ultimately, I have to say the movie wasn't as good as the book. Details are lost from print to screen, and sometimes it's necessary not to use scenes because they're hard to translate into film. The way Captain Kidd and Johanna met was different than in the book, but the director and producers were able to make it make sense. It would have saved time, I think, had they stuck to the book's plot. There was some unnecessary visiting with soldiers they could have left out and used the time for something else like mm, how the book really ended. However, it did impress how strict traveling was during Reconstruction after the Civil War and how lawless Texas was. In the movie, Kidd was a former Confederate soldier. In the book, he was a veteran and obviously officer in the War of 1812 and the Mexican-American War. I believe he was too old to serve during the Civil War, but his family was living in Georgia after the death of his wife. I can't recall why he was wandering around in Texas. So there was a significant age difference between the medias. In fact, in the movie, it gave the dates of his wife's birth and death, and she was like 30-ish when she died. They had no family because he was off fighting. They didn't bring up the fact that she was Spanish and inherited significant properties in Texas either, but that wasn't pivotal to the plot. Johanna was more civilized and had a grasp of English in the movie. She even had a moment of wiseness that didn't fit with a 10-year-old girl. I prefer her wild side and how she redeveloped her relationship to her German-American roots in the book, taking cues from Captain Kidd. The scenery was fantastic. They filmed the movie in Santa Fe, New Mexico, but I wouldn't have known that. There were many landmarks that probably more experienced travelers could point out. Some of the scenes were too far-fetched to believe. They were trapped in a sudden dust storm when it hit the plains after their wagon rolled down a hill and their horses were killed. Kid is yelling for Johanna the entire time. I've never been in a dust storm, but I've read enough about them to know you can't see or hear or breathe. You hunker down, cover your mouth, nose and eyes as best as you can, and wait it out. For some reason, a band of Indians, who were probably Kiowa, showed up and gave them a horse. So, I don't know a whole lot about Kiowa Indians, but I've read enough Louis L'Amour novels to confidently say Indians wouldn't have been out in a dust storm. They would have known it was coming and would have sought shelter. Johanna was the spitting image of a German girl with very light blonde hair and blue eyes. There's no way these Indians saw her as one of their own. They couldn't have heard her speaking Kiowa either because there was too much noise. How lucky for Kid and Joanna the Indian band happened to have a horse and a western-style saddle and just gave it away. Hello? These are plains people who know the value of a horse. They were literally some of the best horsemen in the world, and Indians are pretty savvy. They would have wanted something in trade for the horse. Maybe I'm the one looking the gift horse in the mouth. They also changed one of the characters, John Calley, who made a difference at the end of the book, into an idiot who didn't reappear after Kid dropped him off with a wagon train. I can't remember for sure how smart Callie was, but if he was a total idiot, I guarantee the book wouldn't have ended the way it did. There's a lot more to the movie than the things I've mentioned. There's a shootout between Kid and a bad guy named Almay that stuck closely to the book. 
It was tense and well-filmed. The ending kind of irked me since I liked the book's ending, although it didn't go totally off the tracks. That helped with my opinion. I have to say I like the movie, just not as well as the book. Typical. If I hadn't read the book first, I think I would have enjoyed the movie more. If you don't compare them and you look at them as separate stories, the movie was wonderful with the acting and scenery, except for the dust storm. It was worth going to see in the theater. Once again, sorry about being unable to get that recipe for you guys. Let's hope in the upcoming weeks things go a little smoother. Don't forget to visit the Stone County Library Facebook page where you can stay up to date on news and activities and interact with the other library patrons. And please visit the podcast Twitter page. Come find us at twitter.com slash podcast for podcast updates, interesting links, pictures of Winky, and book-related memes. Once again, thanks for joining us. Don't forget, if you like Read Into Something, please leave us a rating or a review. It means a lot to us. Thanks. Until we meet again, Alice and Winky signing off. Disclaimer, views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to Alice and not necessarily to her employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual.